Welcome to the QuackCast, the award-winning podcast that evaluates supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine, a.k.a. scams, from the cloudy and perpetually rainy Pacific Northwest. This is roughly the 264th, not even close, is it? This is the 64th QuackCast, and it's called Parasites. I saw a patient recently for parasites. I get a sinking feeling when I see that diagnosis on the schedule, as it rarely means a real parasite. The Great Pacific Northwest is mostly parasite-free, so either it is a traveler or someone with delusions of parasitism. The latter comes in two forms, the classic form and Morgellons. Neither are likely to lead to a meaningful doctor-patient interaction, since it usually means conflict between my assessment of the problem, you don't have parasites, and the patient's assessment of the problem, I have parasites. There is rarely a middle ground upon which to meet. The most memorable case of delusions of parasitism I have seen was a patient who I saw in clinic, and while we talked, the patient ate a clove of garlic roughly every minute, filling the room with a smell of garlic. Why the garlic? I asked. To keep the parasites at bay, he told me. So I asked him to describe the parasite. He told me they floated in the air, fell on his skin, and then burrowed in. Later, he plucked them out of his nose. At this point, he took out a large brown bottle and shook it, and it rattled. I keep them in here, he said, and he screwed off the lid and dumped about three cups of dried boogers on the exam table. To my credit, I neither screamed nor vomited, although for a year I could not eat garlic, and I love chicken with 40 cloves of garlic. I think it was during this time I was attacked by a vampire and joined the ranks of the undead. I have seen the occasional earthworm somehow dragged into the house and dumped in the toilet and thought to be an intestinal parasite. And sometimes people start to pay attention to their stool, often for the first time, and note there are tube-like structures that move in the water. These most likely represent mucus or undigested fiber wafting in the gentle currents of the toilet water. Doesn't that sound romantic? But the contents of the average stool, like hot dogs and laws, are better left unexamined. In those patients, an examination of the stool for worms and worm eggs is usually unrevealing and makes me very glad I am not a microbiology technician. Morgellons, as best I can tell, is a variant of delusions of parasitism and has nothing to do with going around the world. Here's the thing about germs in general and parasites specifically. They have patterns and they can be seen. There are patterns of disease and patterns to their life cycle. You can tell when a disease is usually delusional because the organisms have no understandable pattern in their life cycle, in the disease, in the physiology, in the anatomy, or the epidemiology. In germs, well, they can usually be seen. Well, most germs. Single-celled organisms can be tricky and may require special stains to be seen under the microscope. Viruses, of course, are too small to be seen by a lab microscope. There is one curious exception to that rule. But parasites? Worms? These wee beasties are multicellular. They're big. Not a long way to the chemist's big, but sizable, and should be easy enough to see unless they have Romulan cloaking technology or an invisibility cloak. 
Harry Potter and the Parasite of Doom. I can see it now. So what is Morgellons? Now before we continue, I would like to clarify one thing. I see patients self-diagnosed with chronic Candida syndrome, not Candida, Candida, Morgellons or chronic Lyme or some other process. I do not doubt that these people are ill and have symptoms that can be severe and life-altering. What I often disagree with is the patient's reason for these symptoms. As best as I can tell, none of these are due to an infectious disease. Unfortunately, when the patient is convinced they have an etiology for their symptoms, and I think that etiology is nonsense, it does not lead to a therapeutic physician-patient interaction. I try and phrase my judgment as gently and non-judgmentally as possible, but it rarely leads to a good time in the clinic. Curiously, a lot of docs in the city refuse to see these patients, and sometimes I think I'm the only one who will see anybody with Morgellons or chronic Lyme who shows up at my door. They're smarter than I am, I think. Morgellons has existed as a disease since about 2002 and is an internet phenomenon right up there with Rebecca Black. See? For a 54-year-old man, I am hip. Morgellons received its name from a paper from 1935 called Sir Thomas Brown and the Disease Called Morgellons, which was published in the Annals of Medical History. And it refers to a disease from the 1600s. Yes, the 1600s, described by the aforementioned Thomas Brown. Quote, Hairs which have most amused me have not been in the face or head, but on the back, and in men, not children. But I long ago observed in the endemial distemper of little children of Languedoc, called the Morgellons, wherein they critically break out with harsh hairs on their backs, which take off the unquiet symptoms of the disease and delivers them from coughs and convulsions, end quote. I don't really quite know what that means. Who knows what these hairs and worms really were? The 1600s were not a time noted for its diagnostic accuracy. Unlike the modern disease, it was usually a disease of children and often fatal. So whether these hairs had anything to do with the disease or actual living creatures, one cannot say. In 1715, the first microscopist, Leeuwenhoek, took a look at the bristles and thought them to be inanimate, starting a long tradition of looking at the detritus presented by Morgellons patients and seeing nothing. I, for one, always look at the fluff brought in by Morgellons patients and have yet to see anything resembling a living creature. Now, diseases have come and gone in the past, like the English sweating sickness, so maybe there was a plague of virulent hairs. That's hair, H-A-I-R, not H-A-R-E. It was not a virulent bunny, for which I'm sure Hef is undoubtedly grateful. But, he says, finishing up a convoluted sentence, these virulent hairs are no more. So fast forward 400 years. Around about 2002, this disease was described on the interwebs in regards to a child with the symptoms now referred to as Morgellons, and since then, others have had the disease. It is apparently transmissible as an internet meme, but not transmissible person to person. So, what are the distinguishing characteristics of Morgellons? Well, here's what the Morgellons Research Foundation has to say. One, filaments are reported in and on the skin and at times extruding through intact appearing skin. 
White, blue, red, and black are common among described fiber colors. Two, movement sensation, both beneath and on the skin surface. Three, skin lesions, both spontaneously appearing and self-generated from intense itching. Four, musculoskeletal effects and pain is usually present. Five, aerobic limitation is universal and significant enough to interfere with activities of daily living. Six, cognitive dysfunction. And seven, emotional effects are present in most patients, end quote. But it is the filaments. Now, as again, as I said, over the years, I have seen the smattering of Morgellons, and they bring in the filaments, and I look at them under the microscope, and I see hairs, and I see threads, and I see nonspecific detritus, but never anything that resembles the results of a living creature or a living creature. And I have looked carefully at the skin of these patients, both with and without a magnifying glass, and I've never seen an intradermal fiber. So you can see why I am a wee bit skeptical that this is anything but a version of delusions of parasitism. At least the patients don't bring in their dried boogers. In one series of 25 patients, they found, quote, most patients in this study had prior psychiatric diagnoses, bipolar disease, ADD, OCD, and schizophrenia, end quote. The same study showed these patients had a hodgepodge of lab abnormalities, but they were not compared to mass controls. Now, it could very well be that these patients have some underlying inflammatory process that causes skin lesions and a feeling of the creepy crawlies. Certainly, if you like to use lots of crystal meth, you can get that reaction. And perhaps they are misidentifying standard environmental material as some fiber associated with Morgellons. But I'm suspiciously skeptical that Morgellons represents a unique clinical entity. Also against this hypothesis are the case reports where Morgellons is cured with pimozide, an antipsychotic. Delusions of parasitism is often treated with antipsychotics, classically with a drug called olanzapine. But others have suggested that pimozide is superior. I am distinctly impressed with anybody who can talk a delusions of parasitism patient to take an antipsychotic. Once you bring up the fact that you think it's delusional, they're usually out the door and very angry. Most infections would be unlikely to respond to antipsychotics, and I have never been satisfied with response to therapy as a means for confirming a diagnosis. That is a path better not followed unless you have a damn good reason. In my world, for example, docs often think if a patient is improving on antibiotics, their response is considered evidence of a treated infection. I know better. But given the lack of a demonstrable parasite and the response to psychiatric medications is certainly suggestive that Morgellons is a form of psychosis. So response to antipsychotics would suggest patients with Morgellons could have a psychosis. But if you see these patients, Keep in mind, it does not necessarily extrapolate to all patients. I always try and keep in mind that when patients present with odd symptoms that they attribute to worms or Lyme or Candida, that it may be a simple misunderstanding and they have some other underlying medical process causing their symptoms. And certainly once a patient shows up with these diagnoses in a doctor's office, the physician seeing them often stops thinking about them. 
So the least you can do is make sure they don't have some other underlying medical problem. As of this podcast, no one has come close to fulfilling Koch's postulates for Morgellons. For those of you not immersed in infectious disease, Koch's postulates were a series of criteria that were used to demonstrate the causality of infections. Here they are, with the word filament substituted for microorganisms. 1. The filament must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but should not be found in healthy organisms. 2. The microfilaments must be isolated from a disease organism and grown in pure culture. 3. The cultured filament should cause disease when entered into a healthy organism. And 4. The filament must be re-isolated from the inoculated disease experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. So far, the proponents of Morgellons are 0 for 4. But if this disease is due to something that can be visualized with the naked eye or even a magnifying glass, it should be simple enough to characterize. Let's say you are a nurse practitioner and a member of Iliads. Now, I have to admit you've lost some credibility with me if you're a member of Iliads, but be that as it may. But let's say you saw a series of patients with Morgellons and you could see the fibers. There, right there, you can see them. Would you not biopsy the fibers? Would you not try to characterize them? No, they didn't in this paper. So aggravating. It boggles the mind that someone would let a diagnostic coup pass right in front of them without doing the necessary tests to figure out what the disease is. Not unless, of course, you didn't want the fibers characterized as parts of the patient's shirt because you generate income from taking care of Morgellons patients. See, I can come up with a conspiracy theory just as well as the next person. Delusions parasitism can be nosocomial. Well, not truly delusions, mind you, but patients can be convinced that they have parasites when in fact they do not and waste serious amounts of time and cash in pursuit of an imaginary diagnosis. I recently saw another patient who had unexplained abdominal pain for a year and a half. The patient had an extensive evaluation, CAT scans, endoscopies, blood work. They even swallowed a camera that passed through their gastrointestinal tract, taking pictures all the way through. Beats some people's vacation slides, that's for sure. Anyway, the patient had this extensive evaluation and no explanation for their symptoms, and, looking for answers, eventually wandered into the arms of a naturopath. One of the shows my eldest son used to like to watch was I Love the 80s on VH1. The 1980s was a decade I was in medical school, residency, and fellowship. When I watched I Love the 80s with him, I recognized virtually nothing of popular culture of that time. I didn't recognize the TV shows, the hairstyles, the music, the commercials, nothing. It really brought home to me how consuming becoming a doc and a subspecialist is. A decade of my life was essentially spent understanding internal medicine and infectious diseases. I'm not complaining, mind you. I have the best gig in the city. But it takes a lot of time and focus to become a doctor. Now, there are reasons that people go to an Altmed provider, and I do not think gullibility is on the list. The patient with the abdominal pain and their spouse were educated people. 
So why would they see a naturopath? Well, looking for answers. Their areas of knowledge were totally removed from medicine and science. And while it is popular to bemoan the science illiteracy of the U.S. population, and science knowledge in the United States is sorry indeed, if your career arc was law or finance or auto repair or just being a stoner at the 7-Eleven, are you going to find the time to become literate in medicine? Doubt it. It took me 10 years. I can't design a bridge or fly a jet. Why would I expect someone who has mastered these tasks to understand medicine? There are just so many hours in a day to accomplish tasks. I have, as a further example, zero idea if my mechanic is giving me good diagnostic and repair advice on my car. I have to take everything he says on faith. I have neither the time nor the inclination to become expert in car repair. And most people do not have the time and inclination to become expert in medicine. Are they gullible? Am I gullible? I don't think so. You trust people. I had my epiphany years ago when I told the father of a meningitis patient, your daughter has an infection in the fluid that surrounds her brain. And he replied, Doc, we're simple people. Could you phrase that in a way I can understand it? He had no idea of basic brain anatomy or infection and no reason to. So I drew him a picture. It helped immensely. So anyway, the patient wandered into the lair of a naturopath and was diagnosed with parasites. Now, mind you, the patient does not have symptoms that could be reasonably ascribed to worms or parasites, and more importantly, has no risk factors for parasites or worms. The industrialized West is reasonably free of worms and their brethren. The naturopath did not do serology or blood work or even a simple stool study looking for eggs of various worms. That is how I, along with a history and physical looking for the pattern of disease that marks a parasite, come to a diagnosis. No, he or she, I don't remember the pronoun that the patient used at the time, proudly used electrodiagnosis. Proudly. As my patient related it to me, the naturopath, a graduate of Bastyr, B-A-S-T-Y-R, and just note I am passing up a wonderful opportunity for deliberate mispronunciation of a naturopathic school, Bastyr, B-A-S-T-Y-R, considered herself to be an expert in the diagnosis and treatment of parasites using electrodiagnosis. Hmm, what is electrodiagnosis, you ask? Well, if you go on the interwebs, you will find many different electrodiagnostic devices, so I do not know precisely which one the patient used. My patient said that they held an electrode in each hand, and the naturopath, who is an expert in parasitology, touched them on various areas of their body and twirled a dial using another probe, and then told them that the reading indicated parasites. Really? Now, I am proud, as in the first case, that I did not burst out laughing during the interview. As from my perspective, it was a ludicrous joke. But, as I mentioned, not everyone knows what I do. EEGs and EKGs are a form of electrodiagnosis that can find a variety of medical problems. So really, why not a parasite infection? How is electrodiagnosis said to work? Well, it measures disturbances in the body's flow of electromagnetic energy 
along acupuncture meridians. But what they are, essentially, is galvometers, galvanometers, galvanometers, galvanometers. English is a second language. They measure skin resistance when the patient's skin is touched by a probe. Now, this is two pseudosciences in one. I've seen more. It is sometimes called electroacupuncture according to Vol or EAV, galvanometer, 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 and was pulled out of Dr. Vol's backside in the 1950s. Quote, the basic concept for all electrodermal screening devices was the invention by Dr. Reinhold Vol who in the 1940s discovered that the electrical resistance of the human body is not homogenous and that meridians existed all over the body which may be demonstrated as electrical fields. Furthermore, he showed that the skin is a semi-insulator to the outside environment. I would hope so. By the 1950s, Vol had learned that the body had at least a thousand points on the skin which follow the 12 lines of classic Chinese meridians. For each of these points, he called a measurement point and created an instrument to measure the skin resistance at each of the acupuncture points. This was named point testing. End quote. Now, there is zero validity for making any diagnosis this way. Except, of course, and I want to clarify, the e-meter of Scientology. I would not want to cross them there, Scientologist. Oh, no, uh-uh, no way. E-meter, forever. E-meter, the perfect galvanometer. But those other electronic devices, not the e-meter, pure bunkum. I could not say it better than Quackwatch. Quote, the devices are used to diagnose non-existent health problems, select inappropriate treatment, and defraud insurance companies. The practitioners who use them are either delusional, dishonest, or both. End quote. That the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians has had a position paper on electrodiagnosis that considers it to be experimental instead of a crock of fetid dingo's kidneys is another sign that naturopaths have no business taking care of people. To quote their position paper, quote, there are three levels of electrodiagnosis. Meridian testing. Readings are interpreted in indicate strength of specific meridians, organ strength, and physiologic function. B. Remedy testing. Variations in readings are interpreted when remedies are given to the patient either orally, to hold, to hold, or to put on a testing plate wired to the electrodiagnostic equipment. So I guess you get a patient who needs electrodiagnosis, you put the remedy on a plate and see if the galvanometer changes. And then you can determine whether it's an appropriate therapy. I mean, we're talking real wackaloon central here. And finally, energy medicines. Electrodiagnostic equipment interprets information and manufactures an energy medicine which is given for the patient to take orally. Therefore, it is the position of the AANP that it is appropriate that the naturopathic profession pursue scientific research regarding the reproducibility and reliability of electrodiagnosis. These are the people who want to be primary care physicians. <laughs> Whoa. 
Now, there is nothing on the PubMeds on the validity of electrodiagnosis. And on basic principles and prior probability, there is no reason to suspect that electrodiagnosis would have any utility in the diagnosis of parasites or any other disease. Now, despite this, my patient received prolonged courses of antibiotics. Now, there are three antiparasitic medications available, mabendazole, thiabendazole, and praziquantel. The patient received at one time or another all three. The patient received them at half doses. The patient had them for prolonged periods of time, and the patient paid for them all out of pocket. Uncertain as to which parasite to kill, the naturopath tried to kill them all with underdosed medications. I suppose, being extensively trained in homeopathy at Bastyr University, he figured that the less anti-parasitical antibiotic he gave, the stronger it became. It's a good thing, come to think of it, that the naturopath did not use his infernal contraption to diagnose a cancer, as who knows how many anti-cancer treatments could and would have been prescribed. By the way, what is an energy medication, and how does one manufacture them? I mean, besides a triple shot of espresso. Well, these principles of electroacupuncture, according to Vol, have been expanded. Quote, Bioscan, remote DNA resonant testing. This procedure utilizes extremely sensitive EAV computerized equipment to accurately measure stressors in the body. It bombards the client's sample DNA, usually hair, with up to 10,000 frequencies to locate bacteria, viruses, pesticides, heavy metals, industrial pollutants, chemicals, parasites, foods, allergies, dental materials, trees, weeds, pollens, inhalants, molds, yeast, fungus, and many other substances that poison the environment today. These stressors and related deficiencies are identified in print form for the client, along with the organs and glands affected by the stressors. Supplements are suggested that resonate with the test subject, and homeopathics are customized to support the body to remove the stressors and return to homeostasis, end quote. And it only cost $275 plus $5 shipping and handling. And they recommend a minimum of four evaluations. When I wrote this essay, I wrote at least a half dozen concluding paragraphs, none of which were satisfying. So I've come to the end of this. I'm just going to stop. This has been the QuackCast, number 64. You can find more at the growing Mark Chrislip Multimedia Empire at moremark.squarespace.com where you will find links to my blogs, my other podcasts, my book. Yes, I have a book. And even an opportunity to send me money. The references for this are over at Science Based Medicine and otherwise I will draw this quack cast to a close and see you next time. See you later dudes. I'm going to go walking in the rain.